Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. On the program today, we're continuing our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with Dr. John Newfeld. From our text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, we'll examine the topic of truth, lies, and the words we use. In the days before airplane travel, people used to travel great distances on trains. You know, in those days, children aged five and under could travel for free, but once you turned six, you'd have to pay. Well, a woman was speaking to her six-year-old son and telling him, when you get onto the train, you tell them you're five. Well, of course, no six-year-old wants to tell anyone they're five, but because his mother insisted and even threatened him, well, he agreed. As they got on board, the conductor asked the boy how old he was, and he, with his face turned to the ground in shame, answered, I'm five. Well, later on, as they were traveling on the train, the conductor, now with time on his hands, began to speak to the boy. He said, so you're five? Yeah, said the boy. Well, how long till you turn six? And the boy responded, well, I'll be six just as soon as I get off this train. You know, most people tell the truth most of the time. But most people also lie when there's something significant to be gained by lying. The truth at times may cause personal embarrassment. The truth may prevent you from making that sale. The truth may cost you money. The truth may prevent you from getting that job or passing that exam. The truth may harm you significantly. And when that happens, most people lie. Psychologists claim that the average person tells between two to three lies every single day. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, it tells us that 36% of those surveyed said that they lie about matters that are important. But how do we know that those answering the survey were not lying about that? See, we are prone to lie when in our minds it becomes important to do so. So let's read Jesus. Matthew 5, 33-37 records him saying, Again you have heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Let's start by first remembering what Jesus has been teaching. You remember that Jesus is teaching from the Old Testament. He has told his followers in 5.17 that he has not come to abolish the Old Testament law. But he has issues with the way the Old Testament law is being taught, especially by the Pharisees. When it came to the sixth command, you shall not murder, and the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery, the Pharisees were woefully inadequate as teachers. They simply taught these things as external commands without paying attention to the implications of the commands, nor the internal transformation of the heart. Now, in Matthew 5, to 37, Jesus turns his attention to the third commandment. Let me read it to you. It's from Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. See, this commandment warns us never to use the sacred name of God in a frivolous manner. Now, from this command comes the Old Testament instruction regarding the taking of oaths. For instance, consider Leviticus 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In other words, should you invoke the sacred name to cover up a lie, you're not just lying. 
You're profaning the name, breaking the third commandment, and with that comes the knowledge that God will not hold you guiltless. This is very serious stuff. You know, there are other Old Testament commands regarding oaths. Consider Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Now, here we can see that once an oath is made using the name of God, you're then bound by it. No matter how difficult it is to keep it, once you've evoked the sacred name, you are to keep it no matter how much personal suffering was required of you. Again, Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, just so that we understand ourselves, very seldom does the Old Testament require anyone to take an oath. Exodus 22, verses 10 to 11, does demand the taking of an oath in a court of law when you testify to the truth of a matter. This same thing is done in our courts today. But there are other times when someone might want to take an oath without being required to do so. When Abraham, for instance, went out to fight against the kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot, he actually made an oath to God. You can find that in Genesis 14. He makes a sacred vow that he would not keep any of the spoils of war from that battle. The most famous oath in the Bible that invokes the sacred name is found in the book of Ruth. She tells her mother-in-law that she will never leave her, and then she adds, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In other words, Ruth bound herself by the sacred name, and that, to forsake her oath, was to bring God's curse on her life. And of course, she was as good as her word, and even more so. There are a number of these kinds of oaths that are found in the Bible. Now, let's consider one more thing about oaths before we deal with what Jesus said about them. Not only do people make them, but so does God. So here's one example between God and Abraham found in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. There we read, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now please notice that when God swears, he swears by himself, for there is no greater name whereby he can swear. There are numerous examples of just that. Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 17. There it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned that there's nothing wrong with oaths. The great saints of the past have taken them, and God himself has done so. If we had time, I'd show that in Philippians 1, verse 8, it actually constitutes a sacred oath that Paul takes before the Philippian church. He starts with a sentence by saying, God is my witness, and so invokes the sacred name. Please also notice that when Jesus was testifying at his own trial, according to Matthew 26, he was then under oath. The point here is that oaths are not for everyday matters. They're intended to be unusual. A person may take an oath only several times in a lifetime, or perhaps never, but once it's made, it's binding. And by the way, as a side note, might I make an application? One of those oaths is your marriage vow. 
When you got married, you said, in the sight of God and these witnesses, I promise. That's why this text fits so nicely with our last one. That's why divorce is such a serious matter. Now, with that as background, we're now ready to consider Jesus' words, which must now sound strange. Since he had not come to abolish the law, yet does he not here contradict himself when he says, do not take an oath at all? How shall we understand him? Now, please remember that Jesus is not taking issue with the law itself, but with the way in which the Pharisees are teaching the law. So what were they saying? Well, in Jewish society, oaths, which used to be used in only unusual and solemn occasions, had become commonplace. People were using oaths in everyday conversations, and all oaths, to be valid, must be sworn by a greater power than yourself. But because of the third command, not to abuse the name of God, you had to be careful. So instead of swearing by God, which the the Pharisees warned the people they must not do, people were swearing by the earth and the sun and the stars and a city and Jerusalem and the law of Moses and the temple and the king and one's parents and even by their own head. So you might say, I swear by the sun, moon, and stars that what I'm telling you is the truth. Oaths had become a way of saying that one was really telling the truth as opposed to the other times when you might not be. And the Pharisees got into the action. Instead of teaching the proper perspective on oaths, they taught that the real issue in all of this is whether you swore by the name. So they constructed a series of rules like they normally did. If you swore by the temple, you could get out of it. But if you swore by the gold on the temple, well, you were bound. And if you swore by the altar of sacrifice in the temple, well, you could weasel your way out of that. But if you swore by the sacrifice that lay on top of the altar, well, that sacrifice was dedicated to God, so you're bound. See, in this way, they constructed a series of rules, kind of like a modern-day fine print in a contract, that stipulated under what conditions you could cancel your vow and break your word. But it was all hypocrisy. Unless you understood all the complicated oath rules, the use of oaths actually hid the truth and didn't reveal them. So when Jesus said, don't swear at all, what did he mean? You know, Christian people have disagreed about this, but we must not miss the most important lesson of all. More when we come back. Jesus now turned his attention to the important issue of the taking of oaths. It's apparent that there was confusion sown by the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the law, thus leading many to think and act in ways that didn't honor God. Dr. Neufeld has begun to shed light on the seriousness of the way we use words to reveal or conceal the truth. After the break, we'll uncover what Jesus taught about not swearing oaths in our everyday language. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus then opened his mouth as he taught them the greatest sermon ever preached, known to you and me as the Sermon on the Mount. 2,000 years later, people are still reflecting, discussing, even challenging each other about its meaning and relevance. For the next five weeks, Dr. Neufeld walks us through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 revealing the heart of what it means to be a true follower of Christ and the implications upon how we ought to live. Join us on this station every weekday, or if you miss an episode, you can catch up online at backtothebible.ca. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's not be too quick to criticize people who lived 2,000 years ago. Have you ever noticed how often we do the same thing? How often have you heard someone say, honest to God, or I swear on my mother's grave, or if I'm lying, I'm dying. I've heard people after they tell me something then add, not a word of a lie. Now, why do they say that? Does it mean that at other times when they don't evoke an oath, there is frequently a word of a lie? Well, yes, that is exactly what they're saying. Or when I was a child, we used to say, cross my heart and hope to die if I tell a big fat lie. We said things like this to call a curse onto ourselves and so convince the others that they could trust us when we uttered this particular oath. It was our way of saying, this time, you can trust what I say. And were we not indicating that we could only be trusted when we speak this way? We were declaring that we were liars at all other times. How telling is the use of oaths in everyday language? And here's what Jesus said at the end of verse 37, is let your yes be yes and your no be no at all time. See, this use of oaths comes from evil, or the text might even read, this thing comes from the evil one, that is from Satan's throne, who is the father of lies. And so when I read verse 33, where Jesus says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn, he meant You've not only heard the Pharisees teach this, but this has been a tradition that was handed down from generations. The practice is well entrenched. And to all of this, Jesus responds in verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And here I understand him not to be canceling both the Old and New Testament use of oaths, but rather I hear him saying, don't use oaths in your regular conversations at all, ever again. All you're doing is covering up the fact that you are a habitual liar. Now, at this point, I need to add that there are some denominations that forbid the taking of oaths in a court of law, and others do not. And I think we should not divide on this matter, and here's why. I have a very dear friend from back in university days who's practiced law as long as I've been a pastor. He tells me that on numerous occasions, a client will tell one thing to him in his office, and then when that same client gets on the witness stand, is forced to raise his right hand, and then is threatened with the wrath of the law if he should tell a lie, my friend tells me he has on numerous occasions seen a client suddenly change their story. He says something like this. He calls it the cult of the court, and he says, it'll scare the truth into people. And for those who refuse an oath in court, they're in effect saying, I would like to make it my personal Christian testimony that my commitment to the truth is the same, whether I'm having a coffee in a coffee shop with friends or I'm testifying at a murder trial. I'm always before God, and ask me to swear here as if I had a higher standard here would be to make a mockery of the truth. Now, I think we should respect those consciences that lead them to do that, but the Bible doesn't demand oaths. But there are other Christians who rightly point out that oath-taking is not forbidden in the Bible, but what is forbidden is using them in everyday language to hide our propensity to lie. So wherever you stand, can we agree on this? Using oaths as a part of everyday conversation is, according to Jesus, an evil thing that comes from the mouth of liars. So let's see if we can give the improper use of oaths. First, 
We should not use them in normal conversation. We've said that. Second, we should not use them to highlight that we are telling the truth now as opposed to other times. See, I've often wondered about small print in contracts. Much of it seems like the ancient Jew who said, I swear by the altar, but did you notice I never swore by the gift on the altar? See, such is the nature of some business dealings in which one party leaves some clever legal maneuvering which will allow them to cancel their word. I think Christians are warned to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So let's also talk about truth lies and the words we use. Well, first, and this is key, only use God's name in the context of holiness. It might be normal for unbelievers to use the name of God as an expression, but it must not be so among us. God's name is to be regarded as sacred. Some believers misunderstand the third command. They think it only prevents us from using God's name in profanity. But the third command condemns all use of the name in any other context, but for worship, for adoration, for learning about him and obedience to him. To say as has now become popular, I'll just say the, the letters OMG, is for us a very serious sin. And then to add, as some do, I swear to God, this only adds to our sin and is profoundly offensive to the God who made us. If you've become accustomed to that kind of language, repent and get someone to help you, to hold you accountable. Don't view this thing as a slip of the tongue, but that which it truly is, a denigration and a belittling of the only name that can save you. Only use God's name in the context of holiness. Do not desecrate your lips and condemn yourself. So first, only use the name of God in the context of worship or of theology or of honor never casually. Second, never make an oath that demands your ultimate loyalty, for your ultimate loyalty belongs to God alone. And see, that would mean that the ancient Christians were unable to swear that Caesar was Lord, for only Christ is Lord. Any oath that demands ultimate allegiance is rejected by us, for only Christ is worthy of that. Historically, most Christian denominations forbid allegiances to secret lodges that demand an oath as part of their initiation rites. I know of one such lodge that demands its followers testify that they are now, once coming into the lodge, coming from darkness into light. No believer can ever say that, for those words belong to our conversion and our conversion alone. Be careful what your mouth says. Don't swear ultimate allegiances to anyone but our God. Christ alone deserves an ultimate oath. It is the oath we make in our baptism that our ultimate loyalty is to him and to him alone. We would rather die than bring dishonor to Christ. If a lodge demands it, we say we cannot, for Christ has claimed us. If the nation we live in demands it, we say that our loyalty will be to this nation, but ultimately our loyalty will be to Christ. But third, all of us need to clean up our language. I mean that we should take Christ at his word. He commands us not to take an oath by heaven, by earth, or my head. That's because heaven is the throne, the earth is his footstool, and my head, indeed everything that is my body, is made by God and owned by God, whose destiny is in the hands of God. So we need to clean up our language. I actually don't think that Christians should ever say things like, I swear on my mother's grave, or other silly things that get said. 
I'm amazed at how often I will even say things like honestly in my conversation. Does that mean that when I don't use the word honestly, that I'm not giving an honest report? Why all these words in our language? Why would I say, cross my heart? If a man or a woman tells the truth, no such words are ever necessary. Indeed, his or her character speaks for the truth. And finally, make sure that you make your yes and no meaningful. Let me tell you a little story. I've heard that the Bronfman family, a very wealthy Jewish family that built much of the downtown core of Toronto, are said to have made deals on major multi-million dollar investments on the strength of a single handshake. The word was out there that when a Bronfman shook your hand, it was better than a lengthy business agreement signed by lawyers and placed into a legal account. When they said yes, it was yes, and when they said no, it was no. And that's how all believers are to be. If the train conductor asks you how old your son is and you say he's five, you can take it to the bank. If he was six, you would have said so. And if the border guard asks you if you have anything to declare, if you say no, you only say that because it's true. I could go on and on. As believers, our word reflects that we are the people of the God of truth. John, the story of the Bronfmans is incredible. It's really a remarkable story. And, uh, you know, I think perhaps we've lost that sense of integrity that our word is our word. You know, I think we all have. And I think perhaps that's something the Christian church as a whole is going to have to wrestle with. I think that, you know, we've multiplied the amount of things that go to law courts simply because we no longer are people of our word as a culture. And so Christians, I think, have followed the culture along. And so we may have given our word and then we find ways of reneging it. We need to start to rethink what ethics looks like for the child of God. You know, blessed is he, says Psalm 15, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. There are times that we'll say something and I'll say, you know what, now to keep my word after this is going to cause hardship. But because I've given my word, I'm going to stay with that word. So I think that's what Christ calls us to. Most of us have heard the phrase, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But today we've learned a deeper lesson here about the importance of being people who tell the truth and use our words carefully. For Jesus demands that we not take oaths for granted, but that they are used in the way he intended. In this way, we are set apart from the world as citizens of God's kingdom. I hope this message has blessed you today in your walk with God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As we enter a new year, we want to begin by expressing a sincere thank you to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year, sustaining our Bible teaching resources, and providing a springboard for new and innovative opportunities. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And if Back to the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, 
please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.